in Malcolm Gladwell's fascinating article in the New Yorker about the iconic Wall Street firm Bear Stearns. He talks about how an institution like the investment company Bear Stearns could collapse after 85 years of history. They were on solid financial footing. They had tens of billions of dollars secured. And yet, this New York Wall Street institution went to the brinks of collapse and had to be rescued by its competitor, J.P. Morgan. In Gladwell's article, he talks about the importance of how leadership played in this collapse, speaking to the arrogance, specifically, and the overconfidence on the part of the leadership team, specifically the chairman and CEO, Jimmy Kane. And he captures this conversation uh, that Jimmy Kane had with a reporter talking about his last day at Bear Stearns. When I left, Kane told the reporter, speaking of his last day at Bear Stearns, he says, I had three different meetings. The first meeting was with the president's advisory group, which was about 80 people. There wasn't a dry eye. Everyone stood and gave me a standing ovation. The second meeting was with the retail sales force of Bear Stearns. And in that second meeting, they also gave me a standing ovation. The third was a partner's meeting that night for me to tell them I was stepping down. And in that auditorium full of principals and partners, they too gave me a standing ovation. And as Gladwell writes, even though his firm, a storied institution, was on the brink of financial collapse, the CEO only looked through the lenses of his arrogance and overconfidence and simply noted how everyone gave him a standing ovation. Oblivious, perhaps, to the realities that he was at the helm when Bear Stearns went under. That is the result and the danger of overconfidence. As we've been looking at the current series entitled Kings and Kingdoms, looking at the various pitfalls that causes one who starts off well to finish badly, one of the pitfalls is the pitfall of overconfidence. And we want to study this pitfall and its warning signs this morning. And so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 32. Second Chronicles chapter 32, if you are new to the Bible, it is in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking in Second Chronicles chapter 32 at the latter part of the life of King Hezekiah. And if you miss our study last week, I encourage you to go and listen to the recording on the web, our church's website, so that you can learn about the first part of King Hezekiah's kingship and rulership. Second Chronicles chapter 32. Look at verse 1 with me. After these deeds of faithfulness, Shinnasarab, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. If you remember from last week, King Hezekiah led his nation on a spiritual revival. 
And there was spiritual reformation both in the inward parts of the people's heart but also manifested in their outward action. After bringing spiritual revival back to the southern kingdom of Judah where verse 1 references after these deeds of faithfulness, look what happens. The Bible tells us that the king of Assyria came with the intention of conquering Jerusalem and Judah. I want to stop here and make an observation. This is so much like the realities of our life today. The realities of what happens right after you do what is right. Often when you hit a spiritual high, when you've gone through a spiritual revival, some evil, some danger, some trouble will befall you. Whether it's because the evil one wants to put you down and bring you down or discourage you. Or perhaps God wants to test your newfound faith and newfound revival. Or simply because it was the sovereign will of God unexplained to us. But whatever the case, I've seen it all too often. When someone reaches a spiritual high or a spiritual accomplishment, a spiritual revival, then something happens. But that being said... We must be aware of this truth, knowing that our faith and trust is not in circumstances. Our faith and trust is not in results. It is in the person of our Heavenly Father. And so it should not matter what happens to us after we've embarked towards spiritual reform. What is important is that we have gone through spiritual reform, come what may. Because there are so many believers today believing that once they do what is right, once they draw near to God, that somehow everything will fall into place. Their businesses will succeed. They'll do better in school. Their children will become more obedient. They'll get whatever they want. And this is simply not the formula for how God works. As was evident in this time, once the nation went through spiritual revival at the gates of their kingdom an enemy force amassed try to take over this nation in verses 2 to 5 we find out that Hezekiah realizes that Sennacherib was indeed going to war against his nation and so he prepares the nation by fortifying the city of Jerusalem preventing water access for the enemy troops and he made weapons of war and then he also encourages the people verbally look at verses 6 and 7 then he set military captains over the people gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate and gave them encouragement saying be strong and courageous do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria nor before all the multitudes that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Hezekiah encouraged the people by telling them, there are more with us than with the Assyrians. You have to understand that in the context of the current circumstances, this statement is almost laughable, especially from someone who is looking at this situation at face value. King Shinnasarab was a great leader. He was a great builder. He greatly expanded the Assyrian kingdom, built up the city of Nineveh. 
He was a great military leader, having just defeated the kingdoms of Babylon and Egypt and others who rose up in rebellion. His forces were strong. They were experienced. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 19 tells us that his armies numbered more than 185,000 men compared to the armies of Judah, garrison in Jerusalem, who were much, much less. And yet King Hezekiah could tell the people, for there are more with us than with him. How in the world could he say that? Verse 8 tells us. With him is an arm of flesh, and with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Shinnasarab's army was the army of the flesh, a physical army. But on the side of Hezekiah is the Lord God with his power and the spiritual angelic army to help fight the battle. That's why Hezekiah could say that his side was stronger than that of Shinnasarab's. One has to think, if you look back at the armies of God, what is the fighting record of God? We often think about boxers or wrestlers and their record. Anyone who is undefeated must be a champion, one you can definitely root for. And if you look at the fighting record of God, you will find out that He is undefeated. Are there any stories in the Bible where God lost? And the answer is absolutely not. There are times when it seems like God lost, but it was because God allowed it. But there is no time where God went before someone who opposed Him and lost. He went up against 400 prophets of Baal, the gods of Baal and Asherah, and He wiped them out and He showed how strong He was in that story with Elijah. As I look through history and I see where God's hand is in history, I see that he too has not lost. Our God is undefeated. Would you not want an undefeated God to fight on your side? Because he will make sure that his record is undefeated. He will guard his reputation at all costs. And if he's on your side, it is automatically the winning side. So where do you place your confidence that's why when the people in Jerusalem heard Hezekiah's encouragement, they were strengthened of heart because Hezekiah's confidence was in the Lord and he directed the people's confidence to be in the Lord as well. Likewise, that is where our confidence should be as well. We are confident in the Lord because of who He is and what He is able to do. We are confident in the Lord because of who He is and what He is able to do. I remember when we were planning our trip to Europe, I made sure that I took our family to a place I had been 20 years ago. Uh, it was to see the famous Nischenstein Castle of the German Bavarian Alps region. Nischenstein Castle is considered one of the most beautiful castles on earth having served as the inspiration for Walt Disney's castles in his park. So this is the original, quote-unquote, Disney castle. I remember when I went 20 years ago as a backpacker in Europe, 
I was in awe how they could build this castle inside of the mountain. It was elaborate. It was magnificent. No wonder King Ludwig II, who built it, ran out of money. But I wanted our family, my children especially, to have the oohs and the odds that I had 20 years ago. Well, it had been raining the day before, and the forecast for the day we were going with that was that it would rain as well. And I knew that it doesn't matter how majestic and awe-inspiring a castle in the mountains could be, if it rained, it would certainly dampen the experience. And so, uh, wanting our children to have the same ooh and ah experience, we prayed as we did every morning uh, before we left. And I prayed a simple prayer, Lord, if it's your will, let it not rain. I just knew that in my heart, God would honor it. We'd come a long way. This was the only day we could visit this castle. He had to make it right. Well, it didn't seem that God heard my prayers. Because in the two-hour train ride from Munich uh, to the southern city of Fusen, the rain intensified. In fact, when we arrived at the town at the foothills of the mountain, it rained and rained. So I was resigned to the fact that it would not be. It rained when we took the shuttle up the mountain. It rained as we hiked to the bridge to get that panoramic view. And resigned to the fact that our picture would not be very clear, we positioned ourselves and as we were taking the picture, you can ask my family, right on cue, the skies cleared up. In fact, a few rays of sunshine broke through the clouds, and we got the picture we wanted. And certainly to the oohs and the ahs of my children as they saw the majesty of this castle built on the side of the mountain. Thank you, Lord. We finished uh, our pictorial and taking as many pictures as we wanted. And sure enough, as we left the castle and began to walk down the mountain, the skies opened up and it poured rain for the next few hours. I looked at the thousands of miserable tourists huddled under umbrellas. They were getting soaked through. And there was one thought in my mind as I looked at them, miserable, shivering in the cold. I thought to myself, you should have prayed this morning. You should have prayed. I know that's not very pastorly. I probably should have prayed for them, but oh well, I got my picture. But you know, God didn't have to stop the rain, but he did. My confidence is in the Lord because of who he is and what he is able to do, not what he has already done. And the simple fact that God can reveal himself in just stopping the rain for our picture is a revelation that you and I can place our confidence in Him. And I reminded our children on the train ride home, I said, remember what we prayed this morning. God didn't have to do it for us, but He did to show Himself as one to whom we can trust because He is the power to stop the rain. Look at verse 9. After this, Shinasarab, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. But he and all the forces with him laid siege against Lachish to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, 
Thus says Shenasarab, king of Assyria, In what do you trust so that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? When Shenasarab and his forces were near Jerusalem, he sent out emissaries to bring a message to Hezekiah and the people, asking them, Who do you trust? Why would you even think about fighting me when you should be surrendering? And Shenasarab goes on in verse 11 to mock Hezekiah's trust of the one true God, Yahweh. In fact, he equates Yahweh with just like any other false gods whose high places even Hezekiah took down. Why in the world would he further honor Hezekiah? Verse 11, does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Shinnasarab sees Yahweh just like any other false gods whose people he cannot protect. He was confident in himself and in his military. In fact, he was overconfident. And from the next few verses, we will see a glimpse of the reason why he was so confident. Look at verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were not the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hands? Shinnasarab says, don't you know what I've done? I've destroyed all the other nations whose gods couldn't even protect them. What is your God, Hezekiah, that he should stand in my way again? And this is the typical attitude of one who is overconfident. He is overconfident because of his past wins or his past achievements. And here's number one if you're taking notes. Number one. One can be overconfident because of past achievements and past actions. You and I can be overconfident if we rest on the laurels of our past achievements and past actions. That's exactly what Shinnasarab was doing. He was saying, I've done it in the past. The work of my own two hands with my military numbers, with my historical wins. These are the things I have done and I can do it again. And I will defeat you all. And it happens to all of us as we slip down the slippery slope of overconfidence. You know, when we're inexperienced at something, when we're doing something for the first time, we pray a lot. We seek God's help. But when we have gained the experience and when we know how to do something, how many of us continue to pray with the same fervor we used to pray when we've never done it? You know, experience is great. Every business leader will tell you experience is great. It's great except when by it we become overconfident. Some of us may say, I've done it a thousand times. I don't need to pray. It's like driving. Many of us, if you still remember, the first few days you learned how to drive. Many of us, when we drove, we prayed a lot. We prayed for alertness. We prayed that we wouldn't get into an accident. We pray that we would know the direction of where we're going before the days of ways. In fact, we even had other people pray for us. Surely our parents were praying for us that we wouldn't be reckless. But now, after years of driving, after thousands of times you've made it safely back home and to church and to work and to school, 
We don't think much about praying. Maybe the occasional prayer before we go on a long trip somewhere. Because we've done it, we've experienced it, and we've done it well, and we've done it right. Then if I've done it before, I can easily do it again. Until you can't. You know, in science, in psychology, there is a term. It's called the overconfidence effect. Or other scientists call it the overconfidence bias. This overconfidence bias has caused many people throughout history to overestimate their position and make terrible mistakes. You often see this in the world of finance. And if you're familiar with the world of finance, specifically in the stock market, you see this a lot amongst traders, especially inexperienced traders. If you have a position in a stock, if you own a stock and it keeps getting higher and higher, it creates a false notion in your mind that it will only keep getting higher unless you have very strict checks and balances, reality checks that you need to sell at a certain price. And most people won't because not only is there greed, but there is this overconfidence effect where we're confident that that stock will rise higher, especially if we have a personal stake in it, until it doesn't. And then on the downswing, when it is dipping, we sell it at a loss, and then we wonder, why didn't we sell earlier? That's why. If you ever read the fine print of every financial document, every what they call prospectus, the mutual fund guide, there are these words, and they are there for legal purposes, but they're often written very small. What are these words? Past performance is not indicative of future results. You ever read that? It's often really small. Because I'm trying to sell you, look at the historical gains, 10%, 15%, 20%, and when you buy the stock, it drops 15% or something. Because past performance is not indicative of future results. It's there. Look at you know, know a lot of you are going to go back and start looking through your financial documents that you've thrown away. It's there. Maybe Shinasarab should have read the fine print. Past performance is not indicative of future results, especially when you go up against the one true God, Yahweh. Are you overconfident because of your past achievements and past actions? Verse 14 and 15. Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand and the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Shanasah continues by saying, What's the difference between your God and the previous gods that I destroyed? And here, Shanasah actually brings up a very good, important principle about trust. When it comes to trust, when it comes to that in which you place your confidence, the object of trust 
is that which is most important. The object of trust is at the center of the argument for who you will place your confidence in. The object of trust. And his messenger, speaking to the people, was literally asking them the question, who is the God in whom you place your trust in? Would you place your trust in a God that has allowed the conquering of many people? Or would you trust in your God, Yahweh, who doesn't seem to be doing much? It's a valid question. But Shanasarab's problem was that he spoke too much in generalities. He writes, he, he, excuse me, he speaks in verse 15, for no God of any nation, whoa, he forgot something. He has not yet gone up against the one true God. He missed one, the real one. You see number two, if you're taking notes. One becomes overconfident because of a wrong placement of trust. We become overconfident because of a wrong placement of trust. Shanasarab trusted only in himself, his forces, his false gods, not in the one true God, and he will learn the consequences of not placing your trust in the one who is real. And we do it all the time. Let's say you're buying a product. If you had a choice of a product made in China versus a product made in America, which would you choose? A choice between a product made in China or made in Germany or Japan or Switzerland. Which product would you choose? You're Chinese. Shouldn't you pick something made from China? We often do if it's cheap. And what we need it for is just something unimportant. But would you, if you had the capacity and the decision-making ability... Would you buy a plane made in China versus a plane made in America? I think most of us would be afraid to sit in planes made in Russia and China versus planes made in Europe or America. Why? Somehow the notion of the quality. If you're suspended 3,000 meters high above two mountains, would you take the cable car that was made in China or the cable car made in Switzerland? If you had the choice, I think most all of us would be the one on the Swiss-made cable car. Now, the products could all be great, but somehow the confidence you place in the product without testing it is in the reputation of the person, the company, and the country who makes it, who has a guarantee of a track record of producing great products. And here's a God of the Assyrians, who seem to have a great track record. But on the other hand, is the true God, who is, first of all, real, unlike the other one. Who is able to defeat all of his enemies, has not had a defeat or a loss. You see, both could bring before you really compelling arguments to trust them. But there is one that is real and there is one that is not. And truth be told, we 
slip down the slippery slope of overconfidence when we place our trust in anything that is apart from God. Anything. Our trust placed outside of the hands of God is already towards the pitfall of overconfidence. Because the Bible is very clear, Jesus' own words, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me as I abide in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. Therefore, apart from him, you are already too confident, overconfident in your own abilities. Overconfidence comes when we have the wrong placement of trust. Look at verse 16. Furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall, note this, to frighten them and to trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of man's hands. The Bible tells us these messengers sent by Shinasarab spoke in Hebrew, the common tongue, so that those guarding the walls and all the people of Jerusalem would know that Hezekiah's God was powerless and ineffective and, and weak. The Bible tells us in verse 17, there were words to revile the Lord God of Israel. Now you can only imagine the horrible things they must have said of the one true God. Perhaps it was the same mantra they'd used in the other kingdoms they conquered. They belittled the gods of those conquered nations. But there was a problem here. And the problem was they were not scared of or intimidated by the one true God. And that would be their downfall. There was no fear of God. And that's something you need to take note of, number three. Number three. We become overconfident because one is not scared of or intimidated by God. When we do not have a healthy fear of God, then we will naturally become overconfident in ourselves. Without this fear of God, we become overconfident. You know, the fear of God is a good fear. It's the fear that I can do nothing if God doesn't allow it. It is a helpful fear that if I don't trust Him, and if I don't walk in His ways, then He could discipline me, or He could take His blessings away from me. Do you ever think about that? But no, we're not scared of Him. And that's why we continue to sin. That's why we continue to get away what we do, because we are simply not scared of or intimidated by God. We do not have a healthy fear of God. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Everyone was scared of Goliath as he came down every day to mock the forces of Israel. 
And everyone was too scared to say what needed to be said except the young shepherd boy named David who confidently challenged Goliath. Why? If you read that scriptural account, you will find out that David feared God more than he feared Goliath. Any young boy standing before a giant of a man would certainly be fearful of him, unless, unless, your fear of God is more than your fear of that giant. How can we say what needs to be said? How can we do what needs to be done, especially to those who are in higher authority? We are reminded that we answer to a higher authority, the highest of all authority. And if we fear Him, then we are able to do what we would naturally be fearful of doing. But if there is no fear of God, then we are overly reliant on our own abilities not scared or intimidated by what will happen to us if we don't trust God and have Him go with us hand in hand. And that, my friends, is the danger of success. In the danger of success, people not only rely on their past achievements, as we've already talked about, but they are no longer scared of moving on with life apart from God. The danger of successful people is that they are no longer afraid of moving on and making decisions in life apart from God because now they're successful. A report in the International Health Awareness Center, July of 1993, reported half of all drownings happen to adults and children who know how to swim. That statistic should shock you. Half of all drownings happen to adults and children who know how to swim. Why? And the study thinks that perhaps it's because that those who know how to swim no longer fear water. They no longer respect the power of water and they become too confident in their ability. Therefore, they take risks. Perhaps risks they should not have taken underestimating the power of water <clears throat> likewise in our spiritual lives we swim out thinking we know life we've lived life we've experienced life we are successful in life and we can handle life without god and we can get away with the little things and then to our surprise we are spiritually drowning because we are overconfident in our own abilities Overconfidence can manifest itself and evidence itself in our own slippage of character or in how we treat what is right or wrong. Let me give you an example. If you've been to Europe, you know that uh, the growing number of restrooms in Europe now have to be paid. So we went to a restaurant and imagine in a restaurant it was a paid toilet and Cindy had to take Janelle to the bathroom and told the attendant who was collecting money that she would be paying for one she was the mother uh, to help assist the child after helping Janelle uh, use the bathroom uh, Cindy realized she needed to use the bathroom as well and so she did 
Then she went out and she paid the attendant for her use of the bathroom. To which Janelle then asked her mom, Mom, why did you pay? No one saw you. Sydney told our daughter, Janelle, it's because it's the right thing to do. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you, uh, for one payment, 20 people come in. Uh, that's between you and the Lord. But it only costs 50 cents, 0.5 euros. Now, I've seen it in Asia, those paid toilets in the same family. They use it once and they hold the door open. And then five people come in and out. And then another time, we were getting subway tickets in London. Uh, it's confusing sometimes with all the various tickets and uh, the packages. And so we asked the help of a London tube subway attendant. And she asked me, what are the age of your children? And I said, they are 7, 9, and 11. The attendant looked at Andrew and said with a smile, today you are 10. Because those who are 10 and under travel for free in the London subway this was someone who worked there this is someone who gave me a free children's ticket for my son but I felt very uncomfortable and later in the day I bought Andrew the right ticket costing three euros now why why did I do that why did we do that so that we can tell you stories for how you should live so that you can think that we are really pious and pure was it because we did that so that we could be good examples to our children? Sure. But more importantly, at its root, do you know why we did those things? Not because we're more righteous than you. It's because we fear God. And because we fear God more than we fear men, that's why we do it. That's why we did it. We feared God. You see, we only feared men. You know what game we play? We play the game, catch me if you can. If we play that game we can get away with anything no one saw me in the bathroom catch me if you can you didn't catch me okay i got away with it i don't fear you fellow man because you didn't see me subway ticket who would have known no one's checking no one's asking how old my son is because if i play the game i fear men only catch me see if you can catch me i can get away with it but if you play the game of fearing God, guess what? He sees everything. He sees everything. And with the notion that you can't get away with it, then you do what is right. That's why so many people are trying to take advantage of the system because they fear men more than they fear God. So you examine your own hearts. And you let me know if you're playing the catch-me-if-you-can game. Or do you play the game, and it's not even a game. You live in the reality of knowing that the God who is omniscient and sees all will call your life and my life into account one day. But you know, God makes it up. God makes it up. Makes it up to you. There were at least on three occasions on this trip uh, where the Lord made it up. Once with, was at a bakery store. We were buying our breakfast food uh, of bread for the next day. 
buying some croissants for breakfast the next day. And uh, as we were paying, the manager said to us out of the blue, why don't you take some of these cinnamon rolls and other pastries? And we didn't tell him who we were, but just gave us a bag of food to take home. And then another time at a Burger King, uh, we ordered, and they gave us the wrong order. And I told them, this isn't our order. Uh, and the manager said, uh, manager said, oh, we're so sorry. We'll get you your right order. And thinking it's the Philippines, they would take back uh, the wrong order. They said, no, 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 you keep it. Once it's on your tray, we can't take it back. So we double the food. Then the third time, we were in uh, Paris, and we heard about the famous La Durée macaroons. Uh, and boy, are they expensive over there. 2.2 euros, or about 130 pesos for one small macaroon, mini one. I mean, that's like 130 pesos a bite. Uh, and so, uh, not being cheap, but we just wanted to try it since we were already in Paris. And we went there, and um, everyone was buying boxes, but we told each of our kids, all you get is one, all right, just one. And uh, they were deciding there were so many different tries, uh, uh, so many different types and uh, flavors, but just one. I couldn't think about paying 2.2 euros uh, for one piece. But then out of the blue, the manager, uh, we were in line. There were other children around, but he came to us, and he saw uh, the three children, and he said, are those your children? I said, yes. And he said, I'd like to give them each free, uh, a free macaroon for each one of them. You know, I counted all the free stuff we got on this trip. It's well worth over 25 euros versus the 3.5 euros we paid to do what's right because we feared God. Throughout the scriptures, it is clear that the Bible tells us God blesses those who fear him. God blesses those who fear him. Now, I hope your takeaway is that not you will be getting a lot of free stuff from God if you do what's right. Regardless of what you get, and so I'm always afraid to tell stories like that. Uh, they do happen, but uh, sometimes people misconstrue and have the wrong takeaway. But regardless of how he blesses you, truth be told, God blesses those who fear him, who honor him. And Shanasarab and his forces were going to see the results when they did not fear God, did not honor Him, they were not scared of Him, they fell into the pitfall of overconfidence. Verse 20. Now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. What, what a contrast to the confidence of himself in Shinasarab. Here, the king of Israel and the prophet of God, Isaiah, both cried out with one voice to the one to whom confidence should be placed, the one true God. And what was the result? Just one verse, verse 21. All those verses of boasting and arrogance, one verse, verse 21, God took care of the situation. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. 
In the parallel passage of 2 Kings chapter 19, it tells us that 185,000 Assyrians were killed by God in one night when he sent one angel to deal with the Assyrian problem. After all that boasting and all that overconfidence and arrogance, it led to his downfall. And the Bible tells us Shinnasarab was never able to conquer the city of Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. If you ever Google Shinnasarab, if you want to see what the historians say, the historians also note this fact, but they never understood how a man who was gifted with an amazing army and of great military brilliance was not able to take the city of Jerusalem. One who was able to put down the Babylonian rebellion, one who was able to conquer the nation of Egypt, was not able, to the surprise of many historians, didn't have the ability to take down the city of Jerusalem. Well, we know, because the Bible tells us, he was overconfident. And his trust was not in the one true God. Well, what happened to him? The Bible tells us, and history backs this up, that Shinnasarab was murdered by two of his sons in the temple of his god, Nishrach. It's, it's a bit of poetic justice, a bit of irony, that he died worshiping the God that he claimed could protect him. And God says, not even in the sanctuary of the God that you worship will you be protected from my hand of justice. And he died in the temple of the false God he worshipped in the hands of his own sons. And history recounts that. Verse 22 to 23. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Shinnasarab, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. It was the Lord, verse 22, who saved Hezekiah and all the nations that surrounded Jerusalem brought the Lord presence and honored Hezekiah and lifted him up because he stood up against the king of Assyria. His confidence was in the Lord. But as we close, just a word of caution. If you read verse 24 to 33, you will know that Hezekiah was also not immune from bouts of overconfidence. Especially when God miraculously extended his life. Perhaps as he was exalted in the sight of all the nations, his head got a little bit too big. Look at verse 25. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, note this, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Just because you are King Hezekiah, one who walks in the way of God, does not mean that God will not humble the proud. Verse 25, wrath was looming over him and over the nation. How could Hezekiah become so proud? Well, if you read verses 27 to 31, he accomplished great things, monumentous things, including building in verse 30 the famed Hezekiah's Tunnel. And he even proudly and foolishly showed the envoys of the new rising power in the east, Babylon, of all the treasures of his land. And he showed him all of his accomplishments that he will soon draw back this enemy in the future 
to take what they saw, verse 31. Now, what's the difference between Shinnasarab and Hezekiah? The difference is in verse 26. When those times of overconfidence came, look what happens, verse 26. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Whenever he was about to fall into the pitfall of overconfidence, Hezekiah remembered to humble himself. And so the Bible is clear. God's wrath did not come upon the nation and him during his rule. Whenever you and I are tempted to trust in our own abilities, to become overconfident in our own abilities, that is when we are reminded we must humble ourselves. Because all of us will go through bouts of overconfidence, especially as we become more successful. We will begin to trust in our own self. Look how his life ends, verse 32 to 33. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tomb of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Hezekiah finished well. What a contrast to Shinnasarab, the overconfident man. who did not finish well. Both went through bouts of overconfidence. One humbled himself, woke up, realized what he was doing, and he finished well. It can happen to anyone. And the other chose to laud himself in his own arrogance, and he certainly did not finish well. May we all be aware of overconfidence, it can happen to anyone. And let us finish well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a good reminder even to me. It is something all of us go through, especially in our success, which it is God-given, and in our own experience where we rely less and less on you. Help us to be reminded every day that the God we trust and place our trust in is the one who alone is true and worthy, who alone can do all things and seize all things. Help us to have a healthy fear of you so that we won't get our, let our heads become too big for our bodies. Keep us humble. And when we begin to become too confident, would you send messengers to us accountability partners, men and women and others, even our parents, to come and give us a reality check. May the members of this body be like the city of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's time, humble themselves and trusted in the one true God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.